0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be continuing our chat about the 80 Years' War. We kicked off the story last week, and if you've just joined us for this week... That doesn't make a lot of sense because you've just started a podcast that has the words part two in its title. And I mean, did you, what was the first Harry Potter book you read? The Goblet of Fire? Not the greatest of choices, but you know what? I'll take the new listeners where I can get them. Welcome, by all means, welcome. And please enjoy this swift recap instead of, you know, wasting your time listening to 45 minutes and me talking about it last week. So the 80 Years' War, the 80 Years' War. Um, it, it kicked off in 1568 uh, due to tensions between Catholics and Protestants uh, in what is today the uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, and of course Luxembourg, back then controlled by the Spanish, that was known as the Spanish or the Habsburg, Netherlands um uh, when we're talking about Dutch again I'll just I'll just remind people this same same deal as I so we, when we're talking about Dutch people in this episode we're not talking about people who were you know native to what is today the Netherlands talking about Dutch speaking people so that is going to take in you know population part of the population of what is today Belgium what is today Luxembourg as well so the Low Countries basically which as I say back then controlled by the Spanish part of the Holy Roman Empire. But in 1568, this 80 years war, this revolt, the, the Dutch revolt, uh, they, the, where they tr- tried to rise up against the Spanish, their Spanish controllers, uh, because ma- mainly they were Protestant. The Dutch, uh, the Dutch revolt were, were basically led by Protestants uh, fighting against the Spanish, uh, who were Catholic, basically. The, the Spanish, the, the Catholics backed up by the Spanish, anyway. So they're fighting battles on land and sea. They're led by a bloke named William of Orange, also known as William the Silent. And I will tell you this, it was a scrappy old rebellion. The Spanish armies were bigger and they were more powerful, but the Dutch got stuck in well and truly and put their name to the fight in a big way using all sorts of techniques that we discussed last week um, the Spanish soldiers also had been committing all sorts of very just incredibly horrific atrocities as they fought, raising Dutch towns and cities to the ground, slaughtering tens of thousands of people. This was known as the Spanish Fury. But ultimately, Spain ran out of money in the 1570s and unpaid Spanish soldiers and mercenaries started to ramp up the violence even further. And this this meant that all Dutch-speaking people, Protestant and Catholic alike, finally actually united against the Spanish, although only very briefly, booted out all the Spanish uh, mutineers Uh, And then, well, there was an attempt made to to unify all the Dutch-speaking people, uh, sort of once and for all, didn't last, didn't work. And uh, by the time that we paused our story last time, 1584... The Dutch Catholics and the Protestants had gone their separate ways once again. The Catholics had renewed their allegiance to Spain, while in 1581 the Protestants had established themselves as a new nation. This was known as the Dutch Republic, and its leader William the Silent only lasted three years as the Stadtholder before he was assassinated, and this threw the young nation into total disarray. And that's where we left off last week with this nascent republic, the Dutch Republic, trying to set itself up on the you know on the choppy waters of, of international sovereignty and having just lost its. Uh, its leader there, William the Silent, being assassinated in 1584. So let's continue the story of the 80 Years' War now that everyone's up to speed, continuing on from this assassination, which, as we've already said, 1584, that's where we're going to kick off uh, part two of this story. So things looking pretty bloody bad for the Dutch Republic at this time, I'll tell you that much, because the Spanish... With the help of their Catholic allies, they were slowly but surely working to recapture territory that had been declared independent by the Dutch Republic just a few years beforehand. So King Philip II of Spain, he'd brought in a big Catholic army from Italy now, led by a bloke named Alexander Farnese. He's the Duke of Parma, and you've got to remember that because this bloke's very important. Parma had been cutting about, chucking around the haymakers, and reclaiming a bunch of territory for the Spaniards. So the Catholics, now a bit of a resurgence as the Dutch are leaderless, well, not not leaderless in a sense, but they've lost a lot of momentum with the Assassination of this big, you know, this big knob here—the the head honcho of uh, of the Dutch Republic in, in its early years, William the Silent. There, so just to give you a sense of things, in 1582, the Duke of Parma was in charge of over 60,000 troops. So the Dutch—they're in big trouble because the uh, you know the Spaniards, the Italians, the Catholics—I guess—is probably the best way to describe them—are just rampaging through these uh, these areas that are nominally controlled by the Dutch. And uh, but the thing is. You know, shortly after, and even you know, shortly after William the Silent was assassinated, the Dutch Republic hardly controlled any of the land under its supposed jurisdiction. You know, all the area that that has um, seceded, all of the area that has declared itself declared independent, all of a sudden now has been reconquered by the Spanish. Dunkirk, Newport, Ypres, Bruges, all of these towns and cities have fallen, and in March 1585, so too does Brussels, and then shortly after that, Antwerp. So the, Spanish, the, the, the Italians led by the Spanish having a great time reconquering all this land that was supposed to be independent, supposed to be part of this Dutch Republic. The fall of Antwerp in particular, very interesting story here. So you'll remember from last week, it was the victim of the Spanish Fury, huge massacre taking place there in 1576. Well, in July 1584, part of the Duke of Parma's army arrives to besiege it. Uh, It was a well-supplied army of about 40,000 troops, and they dug in, they they encircled the city, and they built forts to base themselves out of. This is the Parma's army, you know, again, getting ready to besiege Antwerp. Antwerp's uh, fortunes have not been, uh, you know, particularly good over the last couple of years after having been one of the preeminent trading cities in, you know, northern, in, in Western Europe. Uh, that you know things are going from bad to worse here, and this is just the latest thing. This uh, this siege of Antwerp here, they pulled off quite a feat of engineering the the Spaniards because by, by the uh, in early eighteen oh, sorry fifteen eighty five in early fifteen eighty five they actually built a pontoon bridge across the Scheldt River. This is the river that uh, flowed through Antwerp and where all the um, all the commercial shipping would come in. This is why it was such a, a prosperous city because of all the uh, all the shipping that would come in uh, on, on the Scheldt River. But it was also where they were getting their supplies. Boats were coming in and, and, and making sure the city, the city was going to last through the siege. And of course, once the river was closed off by the Spanish, they built this seven hundred meter long pontoon bridge built on top of boats that closes off the river. It's a blockade, effectively. It it prevented any reinforcements or any supplies being sent into Antwerp via the via boats. They'd be intercepted by the Spanish at this bridge blockade and they'd be stopped. And you know the, the Spaniards they had they had cannon in place. they had troops, they were they were ready. It was basically as just just. Think about a roadblock, except on a river, so no one could get no one could get through without Spanish permission. It meant that Antwerp was bugged. Essentially, there was no way for the city to be resupplied once the blockade was in place. There was no real way for the Dutch to the Dutch Republic to try to save the city because they'd lost access to it via the river. They try, you know, they they used all the usual. Dutch at war tricks there. They broke the dikes and flooded the landscape. They tried to, you know, bring in uh, troops, uh, bring in supplies with uh, shallow bottom boats across the flooded farmlands and whatever else. wasn't effective as it had been in the past. Um, The Dutch also, they sent off little gunboats across these flooded fields. But the Spanish, the thing is, the reason it wasn't so effective. The Spanish had learnt from their mistakes. They'd learnt from previous sieges where the where cutting the dikes had been actually very effective. And what they're doing this time, what they're doing instead here, they'd built their fortifications on the high ground. They were able to fight off these small boats that the Dutch sent after them. Because they were making proper use of the terrain. They're actually setting themselves up on the high ground. They're putting, you know, fortified defences in areas that aren't going to be subject to flood, whatever else, they're like that. So the Dutch efforts to uh, to, to, to contest the Spaniards as their uh, – when I say Spaniards, I mean the Italian-led – or the, the Spanish-led Italian army, um, the Catholics here – uh, their, their siege is much more effective than last time. So the Dutch have to start using some other tricks, right? They have to try to, they, they try a couple of other things. Initially, they used um, juiced up fire ships, actually, to, to, try, to try to destroy this blockade, this bridge that had closed off the Scheldt, uh, in an effort to try to get supplies back into the city. They, caused, they called these ships hell burners. Uh, you might remember them from the story of the Spanish Armada, episode 35, Get Across It, uh, where they were used in the Battle of Gravelines as well. They were small, usually merchant ships uh, mostly, and they were basically turned into enormous bombs. They had big stone casings built inside the ships using, in some cases, old tombstone, which is very cool. Um, and then they filled this casing with, with uh, thousands and thousands of kilograms, up to, up to 3,000 kilograms of gunpowder. Um, they've actually been described as the first ever weapons of mass destruction. I tell you what, it's, I don't think it's far off because these things, they packed an absolute wallop. They pack an unbelievable amount of power. And on top of that, let's just remind themselves, they're called hellburners and are made with old tombstones. I didn't realize that 16th century Dutch rebels were so metal. This is quite incredible. Unfortunately for the Dutch, however, these hell burners they don't have the intended effect. They're set on fire. They're they you know sort of sailed off towards the uh, the bridge there, but the, the attempts to destroy the pontoon blockade just aren't very effective. Even after the huge explosions they created, you know they did manage to a few casualties, proper couple of holes in the uh, in the bridge there, but the Spanish were able to repair the damage to the bridge without difficulty, and so the bl- the blockade wasn't lifted still the dutch were determined to save antwerp and so they renewed their efforts realizing that a small ship filled with explosives wasn't going to do it the dutch instead went down the right down the other end of the spectrum and built built a big ship with what well, not full of explosives but with plenty of explosive potential on it with all these weapons here they built one of the biggest ships the world had ever seen it was called it was i mean it wasn't really even a ship it was more of a floating castle and they named it finnis belli or in english End of war. This ship, as I say, was essentially a great big floating castle. It was a castle on a floating wooden platform with rooms for cannons and a thousand musketeers to shoot out from it. It might have actually been the first, uh, the world's first ever ironclad ship. We're not one hundred percent sure if it had iron plates strapped to its hull, but it might have. It might have been the world's first ironclad. Hundred years, you know, hundreds of years before its time. In any case, this massive behemoth is what the Dutch pin their hopes on to lift the siege of Antwerp. The, p- the plan is to sail it up to the blockade, blast the bridge to bits, and then start to resupply the city via the Scheldt River. Because the Scheldt River, even today, flows through uh, out of Antwerp through what was what is today Belgium and then what is in today the Netherlands. It was it, con- into an area that was controlled by the Dutch, so they had access to the Scheldt very easily. They built this big ship, they sailed it down towards the blockade. Uh, you know, again. Unfortunately, but for the kind of unsurprisingly for the Dutch here, the, the Finnish bellow, it was so massive and it was so heavy that it couldn't even make it. It couldn't even make it to the blockade. The water was too shallow and the ship was too large, and this mighty, enormous, proud Dutch vessel ran aground without ever really doing anything because it was just too big to sail down the river. Oops. Antwerp finally fell without the, uh, without, you know, the hell burners failing with this Finnish bellowed not really being the end of war, ultimately. Uh, Antwerp fell in, in August 1585. But here's where it starts to get really interesting. You know, the Hellburners, the, the Finnisbella, whatever else, you know, that's just sort of window dressing to what the real consequence of the fall of Antwerp was. Because this city falling to the Spaniards once and for all, actually, from a certain point of view was a very, very good thing for the Dutch Republic. I mean, this doesn't make a lot of sense, right? I mean, how, do you, how, how can this be? The Dutch loss of the largest and most important trading city in Northern Europe, how can that possibly be a good thing? Two things happened following the fall of Antwerp, and both ended up being enormously beneficial for the Dutch Republic, which was, again, at this stage, fighting for its very existence. The first thing, was the Spanish response to having captured the city. Unlike in the past where the Spanish had pillaged and razed captured cities, Palmer gave strict orders that the city was not to be harmed once it fell. The Spanish abided by this. Uh, they they even allowed anyone who wanted to to leave the city and go elsewhere, set their affairs in order and leave for, you know, areas that were going to be a little bit more uh, sort of forgiving or, or understanding of their beliefs and I'm, I'm talking specifically about protestants here because stacks and stacks of protestants they pack themselves up and they moved north towards amsterdam which you know the heartland of the dutch republic at this stage and many of these people, many of these Protestants who were fleeing for their areas controlled by Protestants rather than by Catholics, many of them were wealthy merchants. They were skilled, uh, skilled tradesmen. And all of a sudden, Amsterdam and other cities further north were flooded with tens of thousands of people ready to make their new homes prosperous. And this laid the foundation for the resurgence of Dutch fortunes and, as we'll discuss, the beginning of the Dutch golden age because again all of these these wealthy highly trained highly skilled uh, professionals were leaving Antwerp which uh, clearly it's it's the sun was setting on that city and moving into places like Amsterdam and and, and other areas in uh, further up north towards uh, you know what is today in the Netherlands there and this this had a huge effect but the other thing the other huge thing here that also meant the Dutch Republic that was to flourish, uh, flourish and, and, and prosper in the coming years was what was happened. What was what happened to the Scheldt River? The Scheldt River, in case you don't know, as I said, it meets the sea uh, much further north, in, in nowhere near Antwerp, right? In what is today in the Netherlands. This means that the Dutch Republic was able to take a leaf out of the Spanish playbook and blockade the Scheldt themselves way, way, way downstream. So now, no trading ships can get to Antwerp, and, and to it's now Spanish-controlled markets, and where do all, where do all of these, these ships that were bound for Antwerp, where do they go? All of a sudden, all these merchants who might have gone to Antwerp instead are now going to Amsterdam. They're going to Middleburg. They're going to all of these other Dutch-controlled ports and bring with them money and tax and goods and all of this sort of stuff that means, right that the silver lining for the Dutch is enormous. They're now benefiting directly from the loss of Antwerp with an influx of wealthy and skilled immigrants, as well as all of this new trading activity and the tax that comes with it, now that Antwerp is inaccessible to merchant ships. And the Spaniards have just captured a city that, as I say, used to be one of the most important trading, trading cities on earth and now has had its river closed off to commercial traffic so no merchants can get in or out. It is a disaster for the Spanish. So... The fall of Antwerp and its unexpected benefits also coincided with a couple of a few other things here that worked to improve the Dutch position. Just remember, while the Duke of Parma was going about reconquering all this land, the Dutch looked to be in dire straits. But now, all of a sudden, the wind starts to change in a major way. I mentioned this last week. At one point in 1585. The Dutch actually invite Elizabeth I of England to take over as their monarch. They'd flirted with uh, French uh, aristocracy as well. And now they've gone after the English uh, and they basically offer England to have the Dutch Republic become part of, of this kingdom here. Now, Elizabeth ultimately didn't accept the offer. But she did make the Dutch Republic into an English protectorate. And this was very important because it meant that she sent over thousands and thousands of troops in exchange for direct control over, over a couple of, of Dutch ports. So it was kind of win-win. It meant that the Dutch the Dutch military, quote-unquote, or the, you know, the, the, their military power at least, was enormously increased by these by these English reinforcements. But it also meant that the English had access to these new, highly lucrative Dutch ports. And so you know it was a very much I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine type situation here like that. And, and, and so this military resurgence, plus the growing economic power of the Dutch Republic, it started to make things very difficult for the Spanish. But as I say, just the start of it. The Spanish had too many irons in the fire. They're trying to keep too many plates in the air. In 1588, the Spanish Armada was launched against the English, and as you'll learn in episode 35, it was a colossal failure. The Dutch were involved in the in the famous Battle of Gravelines, as I talked about, with the Spanish suffering an, a hugely embarrassing defeat while trying to um, collect the army that was uh, led by the Duke of Parma. The plan was for this army to actually invade England using the Spanish Armada and those who have listened to episode thirty-five will know that it did not work. Very entertaining story. I do recommend you go and listen to that again. Get get me numbers up. Got to get those numbers up. But in addition, in addition to the fail, the, the failure of the Spanish Armada, in, in in addition to the increased English presence, even though the, the English didn't stick around for a huge, hugely long time in the, in the Dutch Republic, still another huge big issue arrived and and the the spanish were forced to deal with this as well because of all things the the next thing to disrupt uh, the the sort of the, the catholic efforts to to recapture spain there was a civil war in france which gave the dutch a fair bit of breathing space i can tell you it was and the dutch made the most of this breathing space as well so once again Protestants and Catholics were at each other's throats this time because Henry IV, the Protestant, had just taken the throne in France, and of course that you know led to a whole big hoo-ha about that sort of stuff. But we're going to focus on what what it meant for the Dutch, who obviously weren't directly related to what was going on in France, but indirectly they benefited from it hugely because within the space of a few years, as the as the Spanish sort of pulled out of of uh, the Dutch Republic and and went to help their allies, who were their Catholic allies, who were fighting in France, there they sort of had to re-divert a lot of their attention and resources to the civil war in France. There, the Catholics. The Dutch were able to use this space, this breathing room, as I said, to transform their army from a poorly trained, undisciplined mob of peasants into a lean, mean fighting machine. Because of how much money the Dutch Republic was rolling around in these days, they had the most, they had the most advanced firearms available, they had great big bloody siege engines, and best of all, they paid their soldiers out the arse. This meant that these soldiers were happy. They were extremely well-trained, and they were ready to start taking Spanish names. And and throughout the 1590s, the Dutch are going about re- Reconquering land, I guess. Now that the Spanish had nicked off to France, and they're doing it without too much trouble. Again, they're, they've got the bleeding edge military technology, siege engines, firearms, whatever else. They've got you know a huge bankroll because of all the all the money that's being brought into them by the trade, especially with the closure of the Shelton uh, and and the fall of Antwerp there. And so, throughout the 1590s, they have having a great time. They recaptured town after town after town back from the Spanish from from Groningen to and en- I'm pretty sure Groningen. I'm not 100 sure of this, but I'm pretty sure Groningen in in um in dutch is something like because g makes a sound and i just wonder how did that happen like was there a dutch primary school one time with are learning the alphabet and it's like oh e uh you know f yeah f, yep okay and g and then the teacher just goes like that and the kids are all like what what does g, what sound does g make and the teacher's too embarrassed to say oh no no it just makes a sound but you know so from that one lesson in a dutch primary school which almost certainly happened i would say now all the dutch people pronounce g as you know a a throat clearing noise anyway they they captured all these towns from to enschede enschede i don't know how to pronounce it enschede but the best story of the lot was the capture of breda right at the beginning in 1590 so this is where they kicked off this sort of uh, this this rolling momentum of of recapturing uh, all all these dutch cities here so it got off to an absolute fly when they decided to attack Breda. i tell you this. It's a brilliant story. I've listened to this. So the brand spanking new Dutch army, right? They're more than ready for a scrap. But the heavily fortified town of is it's going to be a tough nut to crack for them because it's well and truly under Spanish control. It's got an Italian lieutenant, a bloke who is a deputy of Parma there as a governor, and uh, about 600 troops defending. it. Now, that doesn't sound like too much, but on top of that, it's got all these defensive fortifications, great big thick walls, a moat, all sorts of stuff that's going to keep uh, attackers out, right? The governor is also expecting an attack. So he's batting down the hatches and he's ready for the Dutch to arrive. But as you'll discover, his hatches remained at least partially unbattened you'll see this bloke obviously wasn't up on his classical history right it's so important to properly batten your hatches dear listener don't make the mistake that uh, Eduardo Lanzavecchia made and fail to fully batten them because what happened is this the Dutch wanted to scope out the town they wanted to, they wanted to they wanted to get inside and have a little look around inside breeder before they attacked it. see if there are any weak points or you know ways to attack it that were going that were going to work out particularly well right so they send this fella Charles de Herogier, Her, Herogier, I don't know how to say it, Herogier, we're going to stick with that, um, to do a bit of recon, right? And he gets in touch with his mate Adrian van Bergen, and, and van Bergen is a trader from Breda who was still loyal to the Dutch, but he operated from within the city. Now, de, de Herogier, right, he says to him, g'day, age old son, how's it going? Listen, I need to get into Breda and I need to have a little bit of a, a look around here. And van Bergen goes, mate, no worries at all. I know just how we'll do it. I sail in and out of the town all the time on me barge, right? Filled up with peat, like P-E-A-T, you know, the stuff you burn, not some bloke. And D.R.G. goes, mate, I I know what peat is. Like, everyone knows what peat is. What Why, why are you, What do you think I'm an idiot? Why, why are you explaining it to what And Van Berg goes, mate, 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 some of the listeners might not know what it is, so I thought I'd better explain it to you. So or, anyway, listen, I reckon we whack you on the barge, hidden under the peat, and we'll sneak you in, no worries. But and de, rog- de Herogier, he goes, mate, what about the guards? I mean, have think about that? They'll check the barge for sure. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know about this. I don't if this is going to work here. And Van Bergen goes, mate, again, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the guards. They're so thick, right? These blokes, are, they're, they're that bloody dumb, right? They couldn't pour water out of a boot. If the instructions were written on the heel. it will be fine, right? So de Herogier, he goes to the barge. He gets under the peat, doesn't even buy him dinner first. Oh, thank you. Uh, along with all of his men. And sure enough, right, Van Bergen sails them right past the guards and into the town, no dramas at all. Now, at this point, they realise... They don't actually need to get out and scope out the town for a weak point. They've already found the weakness they were looking for with this barge just going straight into the town, you know, uncontested. It was quite incredible that, you know, immediately they just came across exactly what they were looking for before they even really start their mission. So Van Bergen turns the barge around after not very much time at all, turns, turns around, sails them back out past the guards who, again, take absolutely no interest in them. And de Herogier hurries back to the Dutch army to let them know that it's time to give Breda the old Trojan horse treatment. The army is being led by a bloke named Morris of Orange. He's William the Silent's son, right? And he signs off on the plan straight away. Bloody loves it he does. He marches his 1700 men to a nearby town to wait for the signal to attack, while De Herogier picks around 70 of his own best men to sneak into Breda with him. Van Bergen organized enough barges to uh, to fill with enough peat to cover, you know, these 70 or so blokes, and they sail back down the river towards Breda. There they are, hidden in this convoy of peat barges approaching the city. It is freezing bloody Cold, I might add, right near the end of winter. There, the river is half frozen, but their hearts are racing as they approach the town that's guards because they're thinking they're, they're bloody buggered if they're found out. They're going to get slaughtered, and the town will be on high alert, ready for you know, ready for an, a Dutch invasion here. So they draw closer to the town, and the and the guards are there. They're armed, they're armored. They're there to protect and defend the town the, from from any Dutch incursion, ready to leap into action and defend the cause of Catholicism. And they completely ignore the barges which sail past, easy as you like. 70 Dutch soldiers have just snuck into the town under the noses of the guards. No worries at all. Unbelievable. I mean, I once snuck a mate into a music festival in the boot of my car, and that was bad enough. With just one bloke, I was bloody crap me Dax, thinking about how, you know, everything could go wrong. Imagine trying to do it with 70. That wouldn't fit in your boot, for one. I mean, actually, maybe I would prefer to sneak 70 rebellious Dutch Protestants into a music festival rather than my one mate because he was pissed out of his head as well. He actually spewed up in the boot and it took ages to clean up and, and the smell actually, the smell never really left. So that was that was a fun story. Anyway, they get ready for a surprise attack the next morning. At first light, they catch the Spanish with their pants down. The Dutch, they seize the fort, they send the Spanish troops into total disarray. They're panicking the Spanish-Italian soldiers. soldiers they, fl- they flee into the streets, total panic. They don't even put up a fight. 500, 600 soldiers overcome completely by just 70 insurgents incredible in, to- in total 40 catholic soldiers are killed by the dutch as they routed while the dutch lose a grand total of a one bloke who fell into the water and drowned oops by the time morris arrives with the uh with the dutch army right Brede has already been captured de, de- opens the gates up for a great big grin on his face looking smug as anything oh welcome mate to the dutch town of Brede. nice of you to turn up as the first official guests here now, you know, as happy as the Dutch were about this, and as, as well as de Herogier and, and Maurice of Orange did, the Duke of Parma, however, he was spitting chips, absolutely furious he was, when he, turned, when he, when he heard about what had happened. He, he turns up, right, and by way of rep, retribution and punishment, he executes three of the garrison commanders once they flee back to the Spanish, as well as stripping the old governor of all of his titles, not that that ultimately means much as Breeder has fallen to the Dutch anyway, but it's the principle of the matter, it's the principle of the matter. So the capture of Breda was a very big deal, and this is you know not just because of you know it's a great story with the the, you know putting pulling the old Trojan boat trick here. It was also, as I said before, the first major offensive action from the Dutch Republic, uh, and and, and set the stage really for further Dutch victories. They went on to capture town after town throughout the 1590s, as I said, perhaps spurred on by the momentum they gained from Breda. But this isn't the last. Story that we have about Britain This isn't the last time we're going to chat about this city. Is uh, not just yet, as you'll see. We uh, will be back here before very much longer. But but in the meantime, of course, uh, we've got to talk about the other stuff that happened throughout the 1590s as we head towards the 1600s. So after this string of, of Dutch successes in the early 1590s, they you know recapturing huge amounts of territory for the, the Spanish. There things slowed down a little bit uh, as the end of the century approached. Uh, with with the end of the civil war in France in 1598. Uh, the Spanish could commit more resources to fighting the Dutch, meaning that the Dutch momentum slowed down as we head towards 1600. And uh, by the time the the turn of the century, we're in a bit of a stalemate. Both, both sides are building great big, huge forts along the borders, giving the war a much more defensive bent than it had before. Uh, and the Dutch have manned their new forts with huge numbers of mercenaries, while the Spanish basically have had their coffers emptied again by the war in France. And this means that around in 1607, as the stalemate continued to grind away at the finances of both countries, obviously mercenaries are very expensive and and, and the Spanish don't have any money left. Both Spain and the Dutch Republic, they start to talk about a ceasefire. They start to talk about a truce here. It took a while for it to be successfully negotiated, but in 1608 and 1609, major, major sort of chats, conferences, whatever else, people coming together and having a talk about how they're going to uh, pull, pull a truce together. And a truce was finally signed on the 9th of April, 1609. Now, the chief negotiator for the Dutch Republic was a bloke named Johan van Olden... Mm, try this again. Johan van Oldenbarneveldt. I mean, I don't know how he's fitting that on his driver's license, but whatever, right? So Van Oldenbarneveld, what is going on with Dutch names? Van Oldenbarneveldt. He sealed the deal. He secured a stunning victory for the Dutch because check this out. Well, you know, it was technically just a truce, technically just a a ceasefire. Neither side surrendered. You know, make no mistake, however, this was a huge victory for the Dutch. This was a huge victory. Even if it wasn't written literally on paper, congratulations, Dutch win, you know, big bloody A-plus sticker on it or whatever from your teacher. This was a big win for the Dutch securing this, uh, this, uh, this truce here because they had thrown off their Spanish rulers and the, and, and the Catholic religion. They'd established their own nation and forced Spain to agree to a truce, which meant the formal recognition of the Dutch Republic from the Spanish. Utterly humiliating for what was supposed to be one of Europe's most powerful nations to have to sign a, a, uh, a peace agreement or a truce, a ceasefire, with a country that before the war didn't exist – This was a huge blow to their prestige. This upstart group of clog-wearing, tulip-growing windmill enthusiasts with funny accents and unpronounceable bloody names had overthrown what was arguably a world superpower at the time. Imagine how embarrassed the Spanish must have been. Imagine how embarrassed they would have been. This is like a grade one kid giving a half Nelson and a noogie to a bloody kid in grade five. And it wasn't only Spain that had to recognize the Dutch Republic at this point as well, because all the other European nations now had no choice but to recognize it as a sovereign nation as well, because the Spanish have. So it's a huge, well, I mean, long story short, this truce was a massive, massive victory for the Dutch who only went from strength to strength in the time after it was signed as well. So they are just off like a rocket here. But Riley, I hear you say, you promised us an 80 years war and this one only just lasted, you know, hardly has even lasted 40. What's going on here? Well, mate, I have to tell you, We've been sold a bit of a lemon because, much like the Hundred Years' War didn't go for a hundred years, the Eighty Years' War didn't go for eighty—not the—not the fighting, at least. Look, it's not over. Don't worry about that. But you know, this is a bit like when you buy one of them sandwiches that have been cut in half and put on display with all the ingredients sort of, you know, bursting out of the middle, it makes it look like it's really full and it's you know, it's all oh, oh big bloody slice of cheese and, and lettuce and whatever else. And then you open it up and you know, there's nothing. It, it's all been it's all been sort of squished in the middle to make it look good. We, we've we have been sort of sold a little short here because. The twelve years truce, as it's known these days, lasted well—actual twelve years. Historians aren't very good at maths usually, but you know, sometimes we'll get we'll get the odd one right, and this one was uh, exactly well, not exactly, but twelve years, uh, twelve years long. This truce, technically, the war didn't end, as it was just a truce and not a proper permanent—you know—surrender or peace settlement or whatever. But it does mean that we're twelve years short of uh, the eighty years worth of proper fighting. that I promise you. So I do apologise. Take it up with the historians who named the eight—you uh, know—named it, didn't name it the forty plus twenty two year war because obviously that would have been a lot more uh, a lot more accurate anyway so twenty two wait twenty eight year war jeez, I mean, I said historians aren 't good at maths, and I just think I proved my point just then and there anyway whatever listen the tr- the the truce gave both nations. A bit of time to breathe out and get other stuff done. Spain had to deal with a bunch of internal problems, not to mention this massive blow to their prestige. They've now got a whole lot of political infighting and uh, a bunch of other boring stuff that's going on within Spain itself. While the Dutch, on the other hand, with Johan van der Oldenbadenveld as a leading figure here... They built upon the economic successes that they had been, you know, sort of building up from uh, over the over the past few years. The Dutch increased their presence around the world now, though as well. They're setting sail for the uh, taken to the high seas with trading and colonies and all sorts. This is when the Dutch East India Company was set up, and it was the, very much the brainchild of Van Oldenbarnevelt, right? If you don't know about the Dutch East India Company, bloody hell, it's very very interesting. It was one of the first ever mega corporations. It actually set the stage for the rise of global corporations like the ones uh, we have today. It changed the world. It changed the world. I mean, even, you know, massive multinationals that, that are around in the 21st century, a lot of the a lot of the structural uh, logistic... Look, I don't fully understand it, but I, a lot of the reading that I did indicated that the Dutch East India Company set the stage for m- multinationals, for, for global corporations, and a lot of the stuff that they did back then is still influencing uh, corporate uh, structures and, and whatever else today. So, extremely interesting. Definitely changed the world. For better or for worse, I'll leave it to others uh, to decide. But that, I mean, the Dutch East India Company made its mark on history for sure. And again, we're not going to get into it hugely today, but very, very interesting to find out about as well. Anyway, the long and the short of it was this. The truce was much better for the Dutch than the Spaniards as the Dutch took to the sea, spread their mercantile empire in the world, and they stacked some fat paper. The, the, the Spanish, on the other hand, they had to deal with a bunch of internal strife as well as coping with the extreme humil- humiliation of being pantsed by the Dutch Republic. So it wasn't a good time for them. However, as we've said, the truce was not to last. We have to fill quota, boys. It's the 80 years war after after all. We're in the red as it is with this truce. Let's get back to the fighting. Van Oldenbarnevelt had a very hands-off approach to European affairs. He was much more interested in expanding Dutch wealth and influence across the seas. Now, this was all well and good for a long time, as it kept the Dutch Republic out of a lot of, a lot of smaller re- religious conflicts throughout the 1610s, but it ultimately ended up causing his downfall. By the end of the 1610s, Van Oldenbarnevelt's support as a leader had eroded eroded enormously. He he wasn't perceived as strong enough and and as, you know, sort of involved enough in what was going on uh, back in Europe to be considered an effective leader. And a new new political faction was steadily uh, taking over the Dutch Republic. This faction, as, as you might have guessed, was much more inclined to involve itself in Europe and the many religious conflicts that were going on. And Van Oldenbarnevelt and his supporters, you know, were a huge problem for them because of this sort of hands-off, uh, you know, stay out of European affairs approach. There was also a bunch of underlying religious conflicts even within the Protestant faith. And, you know, it seemed very complicated and actually quite boring, so I didn't get fully into that. But it meant that in 1618, ultimately what it means is Van Oldenbarnevelt, the bloke who had engineered the truce with Spain and dreamt up the mighty East India Company, was arrested and flung into prison after you know this, these religious conflicts and whatever else within the Dutch Republic itself, and he was put on trial for treason. His trial was an absolute joke. He wasn't allowed any written documents to refer to. He wasn't allowed to write down a defence himself, nothing like that. And most of the judges had it in for him. They filled the bench with his enemies. He was sentenced to death after this absolute kangaroo court. But because he was an old man by this age, he's into his 70s at this point, he actually tried to seek a pardon or at least have the sentence commuted. But as I say, judges are all his enemies. They have absolutely no mercy. And they were keen to see, you know, their political nemesis have his head lopped off just, uh, just there like that. So on the morning... Of the 13th of May, 1619, this red-blooded Dutchman who was instrumental in the flourishing success of the young republic hobbled up the stairs to the executioner's block with the help of a walking stick. Poor bloke, can you imagine using a bloody walking stick to walk to your death after a lifetime service to your country? The poor bastard. In any case, poor old Van Oldenbarnevelt was uh, was executed, and in his place as the central leader of the Dutch Republic emerged old mate Morris of Orange, the son of William, who had been at Breeder for the old Trojan boat job. You will remember him now, Morris. He was mu- he was more or less the head honcho, with no one to stand against him, and he was very ready to get stuck back in to fighting the Catholics. Obviously, this is what they wanted to do. This faction, who were much more ready to uh, to you know rock and roll within Europe rather than focusing just on the colonial expansion of the Dutch Empire here. So not only did this bloke, Morris of Orange, make sure that uh, the Dutch and the Spanish started uh, fighting again as soon as the truce expired... He was also instrumental, interestingly, in starting a much bigger conflict, the 30 Years War, which ran parallel to the back half, or the back three-eighths, rather, I suppose, of the 80 Years War. The 30 Years War was another uh, Catholic versus Protestant do, but it was absolutely devastating with a massive, massive death toll. Around 8 million people died, and of this, that was included 20% of the population of the German-speaking world. Part of the reason it kicked off uh, was because Morris uh, persuaded a bunch of German Protestants to start fighting Catholics in the Holy Roman Empire, which also led to the defenestrations of Prague, which you can hear about in episode 25. Get across that one. That's a very amusing story indeed, people being chucked out of windows. But obviously, this wasn't the only thing that, you know, started the Thirty Years' War, but it was definitely one of them. Morris definitely helped along the start of this war, and, uh, you know, if anything, he should have done a little bit earlier than he did because, once again, the Thirty Years' War – did not last thirty years. It went for twenty-nine years, eleven months, three weeks, and one day. Couldn't have got in touch with the German Protestant six days earlier, Morris, old mate, to get him, you know, get him going just a week or so ahead of time, so we could have actually had a thirty years war instead of all this false advertising we're continuing to do. anyway anyway in 1621 Morris also led the uh, the Dutch Republic back along the war path, renewed the hostilities with Spain and the 80 years War kicked off once again after this half-time break now, To be quite honest with you, it actually seemed like the writers used all of their good ideas in the first season of the 80 Years' War because all the good stories, you know, the surfing pirates, the great awful, awful, you know, big awful massacres, the Trojan horse business, all that had all happened before the truce, while afterwards, I have to say, it it gets a bit boring. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sure, sorry, I'm sure it's not boring for the people fighting, you know, they're getting bloody shot and stabbed and chopped up in little pieces, but come on, you could have made it a little bit more exciting for us back at home by putting some putting some better stuff in there. What's going on? There, there were a few good bits. We're going to whiz through uh, the back half of the 80 Years War with you know with the quick highlights reel here. But broadly speaking, you know I like the earlier stuff that they put out rather. You know their later stuff's just not not quite as good. I don't think so. Remember the Eighty Years' War. At this point, it's all being fought with the backdrop of the Thirty Years' War, which had kind of kind of amalgamated the the Eighty Years' War into it. Uh, because again, technically speaking, the uh, the Dutch speaking world was part of the Holy Roman Empire at this point. So it's sort of you know they've they've, they've, they've sort of umbrellaed over the top of this other war here. Um, so, but I mean, this also means that the Dutch effectively they were doing it before it was cool they were they were having you know major religious conflicts before it was cool that's fair to say they've always been ahead of their time the dutch you know just just you watch clogs will come back in don't you worry anyway point is Protestants and Catholics fighting everywhere and there are a million different things to cover but we're just going to focus on the good bits when the Dutch and the Spanish uh you know were, were going at it uh, for the time being here which means we are going back to the town of Breda in 1624 the Spanish arrived to recapture the town from the Dutch after the uh after the old Trojan boat there um I don't know if they tried the you know the 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 soldiers in a peat barge trick to begin with but in any case they had to besiege the heavily fortified city for 11 months and fight off two relief armies but the Spanish did it. No worries. Mainly relying on sheer numbers. The upper estimates for the size of the Spanish army at the uh, the, the Siege of Breda here run to truly ridiculous numbers. The highest estimate I found was 80,000 troops at one point. So no wonder Breda fell. I mean, they held out for 11 months, which is pretty incredible, but ultimately did fall, was back in the hands of the Spanish. And that was that. Or was it? No, it wasn't. That was the fourth time that Breda has been besieged and is captured. Although that's including the business with the peat barges, so maybe it should only be three and a half. But this this city has been fought over several times, and we're not finished yet. We're not finished. This is not the last siege of Breda, as we'll be back again later. It was an important victory for the Spanish, however, it was actually one of their very last for the war. They did manage a couple more minor ones here and there, but as you'll discover from here on out, the Spaniards didn't have a very good time fighting the Dutch at all. And a major reason for this was because of the incredible exploits of a bloke named Pete Pieterzoon Hine. Hine was a sailor. He took to the seas as a very young uh, young bloke. As a teenager, he was captured by the Spanish as a young man, and he was forced to work as a galley slave. But eventually, he was traded back to the Dutch um, uh, during a, a prisoner exchange. From, seven, from 1607, he sailed for the East India Company, becoming a captain. And in 1623, he was the the vice ad, He became a vice admiral of the short-lived uh, Dutch West India Company as well. But it was in 1628 that he put his names into the his name into the history books. Here, he had been sailing about, as, you know, as little more than a pirate, really. I mean, again, we can put fancy names on these things. It was, call him a privateer or whatever. But end of the day, he was a pirate. Bam! Surprise pirate history. Once again, he was attacking Spanish interests interest across the Atlantic. You know, taking down their merchant ships, capturing cargo, bringing home booty, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but in 1628, he achieved something that no one else ever managed to do before or afterwards. Hine is the only person in history to have captured a Spanish treasure fleet. This, this, The Spanish fleet was returning from the colonies in the Americas, laden with vast amount of treasure and loot. There were 21 Spanish ships in all, and Hine intercepted and captured 16 of them. We're talking about the most well-guarded and protected fleets on the earth at this time. And Hein was able to sneak up on them with his fleet of 31 ships, take them by surprise and capture 16 treasure ships, stuffed to the brim with riches, and there were hardly any casualties. It was nearly bloodless. The Spanish were caught with their pants down once again, and Hine captured 11.5 million guilders from the Spanish, as well as a bunch of expensive trade cargo. He was, he was having the time, was a whale of a time. He was having such a good time. And on top of this, he didn't even bother with taking prisoners. He dropped all of the Spanish captives off uh, ashore in Cuba, gave them more than enough supplies so they could walk to Havana, and best of all, conducted this whole affair dealing with these Spanish prisoners in Spanish. He'd learned the language while he was a slave on one of their galleys. Talk about poetic justice. Hind sailed back home to the Dutch Republic and, of course, was hailed as a hero. He'd brought home enough loot to single-handedly pay the entire Dutch army for eight months. So... As you might expect, the cashed-up Dutch went on the offensive, capturing the Spanish-controlled town of Sertogenbosch. Again, it's apostrophe S hyphen Hertogenbosch. What is going on? What is going on, Dutch people? Anyway, Sertogenbosch, it gets captured in the most incredible fashion. Have, a, uh, fashion. Have a listen to this. By this point, Morris of Orange had died. He died in 1625. So the bloke in charge of everything was his younger brother, a bloke named Frederick Henry. And uh, Frederick, Frederick Henry was determined to take Sir Togenbosch no matter what. Uh, and with the Dutch coffers being nice and full with uh, all the Spanish money, he hired 4,000 peasant labourers to divert two rivers that lead into the swamps around Sir Togenbosch. This took two 40 kilometer long dikes but it meant that all the water from the rivers was diverted out of the swampland drying them up he then used uh horse driven mills to drain the rest of the water out of the of the the marshes there so his troops could walk right up to the city itself and entrench themselves there rather than have a swamp between them and the city this and the overwhelming numerical numerical superiority enjoyed by the dutch and their english and scottish allies meant that the spanish gave up the city after a five-month siege but imagine that seeing just Talk about you know a big big swamp in the middle of the of the of the way they're trying to capture the city. Oh, just get rid of that. Just get rid of that. Two forty-kilometer-long dikes, please, and then we'll we'll pump all that out there and mar- and just march march right over it. Unbelievable stuff. Unbelievable stuff. And This wasn't the last one here as well because Frederick Henry he kept the pressure up. Master of siege warfare, he was captured a bunch of smaller towns here and there until he arrived in Maastricht in 1632. And again, he worked his siege engine magic. He surrounded the city uh, despite the big river that ran right through it and began work on digging tunnels under the walls. The Spanish responded by sending in relief armies two of them, but the Dutch held them off no bother, despite being outnumbered and pinned between city walls and the approaching army, held them off easy as that, and all in all, the siege didn't even last three months. The Spanish realised that they had no hope once the tunnels breached the wall they were going to, have to be blown up or, or whatever else there like that, and so they surrendered and gave Maastricht over to the Dutch as well. And by now, of course, the Dutch really had the wind in their sails once again. The Spanish were not only fighting this war against them, but also farther afield in the Thirty Years' War more generally, being one of the leading Catholic nations, a make things worse for the Spanish, in 1635, the Dutch formalised an alliance with the French, who also invaded Dutch-speaking areas that were still controlled by the Spanish, so they're now fighting this war on two fronts. To be fair, the Spanish did do a reasonable job of holding them off for a while, even managed to capture a couple more towns as they fought off the renewed invasion, but it wasn't to last, because in 1637... Our mate Frederick Henry, he set his sights on, you'll never guess where, of course, the town of Breda, which had been under Spanish control since 1624, as you'll remember, once they re-recaptured it. Frederick Henry is going to re-re-recapture it now, no worries, and so he gets stuck into what he does best once again, the business of siege warfare. This time, the Dutch encircled the city with two uh, parallel trenches, 34 kilometers in circumference. Incredible. And then they start to dig under the walls once again. They fill up the moat with wood that they can walk over to to attack the walls directly. They dig tunnels under the walls as well, and they set off explosives underground to rip apart the defenses, collapse the walls, and they they just won't let up. Basically, the Spanish send a relief army, but again the Dutch hold it off. No worries, while continuing to pressure the city. And once again, the Spanish have their asses handed to them. And again, this siege isn't. It's not even. That that long. It's it's not even three months in duration. Frederick Henry is a stone-cold siege wizard. And the 11th of October 1637, the Spanish surrender and breeder, once and for all falls into the hands of the... De- nope, not once and for all. Nope. This was, I mean, this was the fifth time in its history that had been sieged. But even then, it wasn't the last. It was besieged one last time in 1813, during the last stages of the Napoleonic... I mean, and that, I mean, maybe that's not even the last one. I very much hope that, uh, you know, Breda remains a, 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 a centre of peace and prosperity. But... I mean if you'd ha- if you're if you're a betting person and if you had to bet on one you know one town in the lowlands being sieged again I mean you know the the people got a people have got a real taste for besieging breeder, apparently anyway for all the successes that the dutch had while besieging cities It was them who actually got their asses handed them on the open battlefield the very next year in 1638. During the Battle of Calo, 22,000 Dutch soldiers were beaten handily by a Spanish army that numbered just 8,000 men, who also had to cross a river in order to fight them. So talk about bloody embarrassments. It was an absolute schmuzzle for the Dutch, who had been on fire for years and years and years while fighting the Spanish, winning here, there and everywhere. And the Battle of Callow, it, it, it has to be said as well, it was the biggest battle of the war in terms of size. Uh, and it was the only one, it was only, it was actually the only pitched battle. It was the only battle that took place on a battlefield during the second half of the war. So I'd say the Spanish actually, you know, at least they knew when to win the battles that mattered. Like, but that's not even true then, because I think they must have misheard the saying as go big and go home. Because after winning the Battle of Calo, they didn't win a single other. They they didn't win a single other battle after this. It was all downhill from uh, for the Spanish after this. The Dutch went on to win more or less every single other battle after this one. Winning battles in the water, such as the Battle of the Downs, uh, where the Dutch navy crushed the uh, the Spanish in English waters, and and this actually interestingly confirmed the Dutch navy as the most powerful in the world, as there wasn't really any other nation who could contest their sea power. Even England, which was you know growing as a naval power, couldn't stop the battle from being fought in its backyard, which was you know again a little bit of. A a blow to the prestige of the English there. And they used this sea power uh, the Dutch did to attack Spanish and Portuguese colonies in the Americas and throughout Southeast Asia. And the Dutch had a great time capturing and attacking Spanish interests in the Americas, while in the Far East didn't go quite as well, although it did disrupt Spanish shipping, obviously. And the attacks on all the Portuguese colonies also stoked the fires of discontent in Portugal, which at the time was under Spanish rule and led to an uprising there in 1640, another thing that the Spanish had to deal with. This was just all it was all too much for Spain. From 1640 onwards, they began to seek a peace settlement with the Dutch. They're facing revolts not only in Portugal but in Catalonia as well. There's internal infighting, there's political battles that are being fought. There, there, I mean, the, the cause of Catholicism is under siege again throughout Europe, and, and Spain is just having a terrible, terrible time. In the meanwhile, the Dutch were slowly but surely working their way through what used to be uh, the, the Habsburg Netherlands, making gains, continuing to establish their military might both on land and sea, and generally just making life hell for the Spanish. The very last battle of the 80 Years' War was the Siege of Hulst, which took place in 1645, and our boy Frederick Henry is at it again, but this time he is employing some serious pro-gamer speedrun strats. The town falls in under a month. Unbelievable. But as I say... That's more or less it for fighting major battles between the uh, the the Spanish and the Dutch. That is it. The Spanish are seeking peace, and while the Dutch, obviously, you know, they're seeing how long this gravy train can keep going. War is expensive, and there are now enough people that are saying, "All right, enough's enough." You know, time to hang up the old clogs. I reckon because you know we, we've given them a proper pasting. We, we yeah, you know, we can we can let them go. I think I think I think the, we've got the message across there. So as the enthusiasm for the war continues to cool off in uh, in the Dutch Republic as well as in Spain um they, we start to you know get into the realm of, of of peace talks the the war was more or less won by the Dutch it was now just a matter of tying up all the loose ends so formal peace talks um uh, began at the beginning of 1646 as part of actually the overall peace negotiations that were looking to end the 30 years War as well now initially the talks went very well they used the 12 years truce as a basis for the negotiations but the Dutch had some key demands that they forced the Spanish to, to agree to in addition these included giving the Dutch Republic great big tracts of land both in Europe and around the world in the form of colonial possessions. Uh, The Dutch also forced the Spanish to accept the permanent commercial closure of the Scheldt, meaning that Antwerp was buggered for good. It was never going to recover now that the Scheldt was closed to commercial traffic for good. And a bunch of other stuff that's not particularly interesting. Long story short, the Dutch took Spain to the cleaners, and they're able to force them to to agree to all of these terms. Basically, unconditional. Well, not quite unconditional, but basically, you know, to game a sieve, and you've, you've just completely won. You can just tick every single box before you go demand peace. I mean, that's it. That's just what's happened there. Interestingly, however, the Spanish are ready to accept this. Do you know who's not ready to accept the terms of this agreement? The French. It was another nation altogether that held up the peace process. France kept, kept disagreeing to the terms as an ally of the Dutch. They kept asking for more and more concessions for, from Spain for, you know, for their own benefit. And they could do this. As the peace talks, again, they were part of the wider conferences that were going on for the Thirty Years' War. The Spanish-Dutch conflict had just been kind of bundled in with all of the rest of the negotiations there. Now, as a result of France's continued continued meddling, both the Dutch and the Spanish said, bugger this for a joke, you idiots sought out your Thirty Years' War. We've been fighting for 80 years, mate, and we've had it up to the back teeth, so we're off, we're going to figure it out by ourselves. And they broke away and began their own separate peace talks, coming to an agreement with what became known as the Peace of Munster, signed in early 1648, of course, accompanying the, the Piece of West failure, which uh, which ended the Thirty Years' War, and sort of was a, a, a pretty defining moment in the history of Europe as we headed towards the uh, headed towards the you know the age of uh, of sail and and uh, co- colonies around the world and whatever else there like that. Anyway. The Peace of Munster finally settled the question of Dutch independence. It established the Dutch Republic once and for all as an independent, sovereign nation, completely free from Spanish rule. So the revolt was successful. They had established a new nation that now did not was not answerable to anyone else, completely, utterly independent. And it also enormously grew worldwide Dutch influence because the Republic... It picked up colonial possessions around the world and was in a, a, a huge, you know, after this war that had, that had wrecked other countries, the German-speaking areas and and, and Catholics and the Holy Roman Empire and and, and and Spain, of course, they're like that. The Dutch, with their enormous sea power, were, were ready to take to the seas and, and and kick themselves into the Age of Sail in a major way here. And of course, we talk about the, gut, the Dutch Golden Age, and this is very much a part of it here. The Peace of Munster treated them very, very well indeed. Indeed. And uh, for Spain, on the other hand, oh boy, geez, it was not a pretty sight in Spain. Worst of all for Spain, I think, really, was the massive loss of reputation. I know I said this before, but the story of the 80 80 years war is one tiny minnow going up against the mighty barracuda that was Spain and bloody winning the whole thing, mate. Well, actually, I guess not quite the whole thing. Spain retained uh, control of the southern part of the Spanish Netherlands, uh, meaning that the Dutch-speaking world was split in two from that point onwards. But still, all the same, it was a massive victory for the Dutch. The, uh, the, 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 the Spanish had their pants pulled down. But this border between the north and the south part of the uh, of, of the Dutch-speaking world here, this border, I'm, I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that the line along which the territory was split between Spanish and the Dutch Republic is more or less an exact delineation of the border between the modern Netherlands and the mo- and modern Belgium today. So what happened after this After this area was split up? The northern part, the Republic, enjoyed 150 more years of independence and the southern part uh, continued to be ruled by the Habsburgs. And this actually meant that in 1714, it became a part of Austria all of a sudden after the War of Spanish, Spanish Succession that, that meant that Habsburg lands were parceled out all over the place there like that before the Napoleonic Wars brought it into the French First Republic. And then in 1815, both North and South were brought together as the United Kingdom of the Netherlands, and Dutch and Belgian people lived in harmony for about five minutes, as you'd expect. Like two constantly quarrelling siblings, they couldn't be that close together for that long. And so in 1830, Belgium seceded from the Netherlands, gaining official recognition by the grumpy Dutch neighbours in 1839. And that more or less, takes us through to today, with Belgium and the Netherlands being the final result of everything that happened during the Eighty Years' War. Oh, no, wait. I forgot to do Luxembourg as well, didn't I? Okay, all right, well, all right, so... Before becoming part of the French First Republic, Luxembourg was part of the Spanish Netherlands and remained under the control of the Habsburgs until the War of the Spanish Succession. In 1714, it also became part of the Austrian Netherlands, along with the area that we now know today as Belgium, but after the Napoleonic, <laughs> of But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That, at long last, is the end of the story. Of the eighty years war, the longest episode of Half Our History we've ever done. You made it through, so well done. I mean, when I first started this podcast, these episodes were going to be like twenty to thirty minutes long. So I could have done the last two episodes as, as like five episodes if I'd stuck to that original time frame. But whatever, it's done now, and you know what? We're all we're all a little bit wiser for it as well in more ways than one. Anyway. Normal, boring housekeeping stuff, and again, it's going to be a bit longer than usual. If you want to skip over this, that's fine, but you are missing the opportunity to get on, you know, on the ground floor when it comes to some free merch and a bunch of other stuff, so I'd, I'd appreciate it if you want to listen to it as well. Um, as usual. Half-House historynet that's the website. You can find links to subscribe to the show, that sort of stuff. And as well, a link to the Patreon. Let's have a chat about the Patreon. I cannot believe... Thank you so much to all the people who have come out in support of Half House History. I've had so many people sign up as supporters, as Patreon members there, and I cannot believe the generosity of people. So thank you so much for that. And uh, and there's a good reason that people are doing this as well. It's because if you sign up as a Patreon member before the end of October, I'm sending everyone, everyone who has signed up for Patreon in November, right, at the beginning of November, everyone is getting free Half-Assed History merch. It's on the way. I'm still waiting for it to arrive, but I'm very excited. It shouldn't be here. It should be here, I mean, next week, I'm hoping. And so I'll put up some snaps and, and you'll get a sense of what you're getting there like that. But every single person who signs up for the Patreon before October, the end of October, is getting free stuff from me. If you're, if you're just signing up for a dollar and then you cancel your subscription as soon as you've got the free stuff, more power to you, good on you, you found the loophole in the system, and you know no one can ever take that away from you, well done. If you don't, however, and you stick around, oh my goodness me, thank you so much, because we've got actual real benefits now as well for people who sign up at different tiers. If you're an existing Patreon member, of course you'll get stuff. You just need to do something for me. You need to make sure your address is on your Patreon account so I can send you stuff for free when it uh, when it ticks over into into November. And please also make sure you go and pick one of the uh, the new tiers that has been put up so you actually get access to the rewards and whatever else like that. Thank you so much once again for having a listen to the show. Even if you're not supporting me on Patreon, I mean, you're supporting me just by listening to this stupid show. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, but again, if you want to find another way to support the show uh, and, and and get something, you know, out of it for <laughs> for the first time in the show's history, Patreon, now's the time to do it. Make sure you sign up before the end of October. Anyway. That is enough of that nonsense. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Please tell your friends about it, tell your enemies about it, tell whoever you want about it. Just We're, we're picking up on listeners and uh, I'm very, very excited with how the show is, is going at the moment and, and hopefully we'll be going from strength to strength uh, as, as we continue the next couple of weeks and months. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. Uh, we're going to close out the show as usual with a question posed on Reddit. And uh, you know what? I've, there's been accusations that of, of, of crass and uh, childish humor occasionally on this podcast. I reject them wholeheartedly. I've tried to raise the discourse, elevate our, uh, our sort of, you know... Uh, the education that a standing, when it comes to history, that sort of stuff. and so you know often these questions are designed to uh, to provoke thought or um, uh, you know engender some kind of debate or discussion like that. and certainly any any accusations of being puerile or nonsensical or childish or immature, I reject these wholeheartedly. With that said, here is the question posed by Reddit historian Turkey and the strawman: Why did the Dutch make such smelly ovens?